0: Thanks very much, and, uh, and my thanks to Stefano and to Clement for what is uh, turning out to be a really um, stimulating conference. In the last uh, 10 years or so since the publication of David Damrosch's book, What is World Literature?, uh, many of us have come to recognize the need to begin to locate world literature with more conceptual uh, rigor. And here I point to uh, Emily Apter's work in the first place, particularly her book Against World Literature. The first imperative, it seems to me, is to pose the question, where is world literature ontologically? Some believe it to be a physically attestable network of texts that, aided especially by the process of globalization, Enter into a myriad of, however complex and mediated, but still ultimately demonstrable, relations that reveal or sometimes conceal the hard facts of canon formation, cultural propaganda, ideological indoctrination, book trade, etc. Others, on the other hand, understand world literature to be above all a prism through which to analyze literature, a mode of reading. Others yet understand world literature um, as an intellectual discourse that uses literature as a pretext to articulate judgments of value and to articulate various ideological subtexts. These three um, uses of world literature Uh, often coincide in the same text, and this sometimes um, leads to conceptual confusion. Mild, at times also not so mild. How we actually understand world literature as an attestable reality of texts or as a prism, I might even be tempted to add a unit of comparison. In other words, a mode of reading is not a metaphysical issue, it has very real implications about the ways in which we approach questions such as how should one essay to narrate the history of world literature. In addition to this fundamental differentiation, I also wish to suggest another more concrete grid that should assist in this effort of localization. This grid consists of several vectors which I have examined in more detail elsewhere. So here I will just uh, briefly sketch uh, them so that uh, my argument is, is aided. One needs to be aware of at least three major reference points in this discussion. Time, space and language. In examining, the, in examining the position of world literature on the axis of time, we are bound to ask the question of whether world literature as an attested, uh, attestable textual reality, or as prism, or finally as an intellectual discourse, and in this last group, I think the discourse of world literature as a vehicle of cosmopolitanism falls, whether these um, Uh, discourses of world literature ought to be conceived ought to be seen as conceiving of literature first as an offspring of globalization and transnationalism or second as world literature having always been there but if this is the case again how do we write its history to account for this historians of world literature such as Nikolai Conrad, later also Moretti, could serve as examples to examine. Or the third option, with reference to time, world literature is a pre-modern phenomenon that dwindles away with the arrival of the nation state and national cultures. And you have here a range of interesting um, thinkers on world literature, beginning with Poznet, who is very uh, neutral, his uh, work is sociologically expired, to the very nostalgic Central European Jewish take on um, world literature as a lost paradise. Um, Mikhail Bobic could serve as a very good example. When it comes to uh, space to open um, the the second vector, one would be interested to understand What does it mean for texts to circulate? Uh, And the circulation of texts is a major premise of Damrosch's discussion of world literature. Does circulation suggest a particular spatial arrangement and a particular way of thinking about literature that insists on the speed of transmission, on its unhampered progression and on removing by implication the barriers that would hold this circulation. If so, is circulation a specific image of communication that is wedded to particular regimes of production and consumption of literature? And I think the, um, the need to see production and, and consumption jointly when discussing this is, um, is, uh, is a point I would like to to insist upon, and it really goes back to uh, the early interpretation of of world literature as a sign of onsetting uh, cultural homogenization, which we find in the Communist Manifesto. We should remember that in that famous passage on world literature, Marx and Engels uh, talk about uh, world literature as the uh, byproduct of the process of the what they call the cosmopolitan arrangement of both production and consumption, not simply consumption and not simply production. Uh, finally, w- with reference to this um, figure, rhetorical figure of circulation, does circulation imply, a point of origin to which the work of literature returns? And if it does, does it require us to imagine this journey as enriched by the added value of a hermeneutical act? The notion of space can and must be further complicated by taking into account the zonality of world literature. And this is an idea that goes to duration and to Neopokojeva. Historically speaking, the players of world literature would change over time, they are not um, statically available in this ever present way in which the current Anglo-Saxon discourse uh, of world literature would, would have it. Um, before the 1870s, for example, it would make very little sense to talk about world literature with reference to Chinese-European exchanges. Although Europeans begin to discover Chinese literature in the 16th century, the first mention of Goethe in China does not occur until 1878, and the first proper translations of Shakespeare do not appear until the early 20th century. But it would, on the other hand, make a lot more sense to talk about world literature in particular zones, for example, India and and Persia, that had for centuries been in closer cultural contact, as colleagues in this room know much better than than me. Finally, we need to ask the crucial question about the location of world literature vis-a-vis language. And that seems a trivial question, but I think it's an important one. Because this, how we answer this question has important consequences for how we interpret the dissipated legacy of modern liter- literary theory. Here we need to confront the issue of translation and recognize its legitimacy, not just with reference to current debates, but by going to the very origins of modern literary theory, the work of the Russian formalists. That is part of the unspoken assumptions of the Anglo-Saxon discourse of, of world literature that I believe is a re-articulation of the um, anxieties of the classical um, uh, stage of, of literary theory. I, I would be able to say more on these issues um, during the discussion if questions arise, but for now um, let me turn to a case study that involves uh, Chinese culture and its appropriation in the West, and which is also directly relevant to the question of the vocation of world literature. Relevant in the sense that it introduces another layer uh, to my discussion, the level of meta-reflection on world literature, which positions world literature, in particular individual literary texts that examine artistically this very idea of world literature and which work out an idea of world literature. In this case, as I will try to demonstrate, this examination proceeds in a somewhat skeptical fashion of which we need to be persistently aware and I have to say um, there have been previous discussions of how literature creates an image of world literature but I differ from these discussions because these discussions used to be and still are very much steeped in a a celebratory analysis of intertextuality where world literature is seen as um, being compellingly and unfailingly produced by one text taking up uh, previous texts or the texts um, that are chronologically coterminous and weaves these webs of, of association and intertextuality. And what David Damrosch very similarly does on Derek Walcott is an example of this recreation of world literature through intertextuality. But my approach is slightly different and, and I want to examine a particular case of literature reflecting on this notion of world literature in a sceptical way. And, and this case study rests on um, Elias Canetti's novel The Blendung. Um, the title is translated into English as "Autodafe." Um, Canetti's novel has a deeper cultural sub- subtext that has not yet been heeded or appreciated in sufficient measure, despite the fact that the novel has enjoyed um, very um, serious critical attention. "Autodafe" is a satire on the humanistic ideals of universalism. It is a counter-enlightenment novel that punishes the hubris of believing in pure reason and <coughs> boundless humanity. Unnoticed so far has remained Canetti's subtle mockery of the idea of Weltliteratur, a notion coined about half a century before Goethe by Schlötzer and Wieland. Especially relevant here is Schlözer's uh, usage on which I have written elsewhere, and which I will here just recapitulate very briefly. Having returned from St. Petersburg after a long stay there, August Schlötzer was appointed as Professor of Russian Literature and History at Göttingen in 1769. It was while holding this chair that Schlötzer, whose spectacular from today's perspective range of scholarly interests mirrored the common standards of his age, published a work on Icelandic literature and history in 1773, in which he concluded that medieval Icelandic literature was, I quote, just as important for the entire world literature, for the gesamte Weltliteratur, ebenso wichtig as, and he lists um, the, the great literatures that make up world literature. Anglo-Saxon, Irish, Russian, Byzantine, Hebrew, Arabic and Chinese, seven of them, collapsing from his point of view as a historian who uses the saga as evidence of Icelandic medieval life, totally collapsing the, the difference between small and great literature. So this phenomenon of, uh, of, of relaxing this boundary is, is a very early phenomenon but it comes from the pragmatic perspective of of, um, social uh, history. Schlöter's notion of uh, world literature reflects the Enlightenment's uh, exploratory drive and ambition to expand the the pool of available cultural evidence. This entailed inclusion of that which had previously been regarded as peripheral or simply non-extant. The revision of the Eurocentric cultural model that was to become the ultimate and still not entirely safe, but by far not the immediate outcome of this process underpins our modern idea of, of world literature, in which the Western canon is but a constituent part of a larger and much more diverse repertoire. And we heard today that publishing houses in in Uh, in the West, in France, begin to open themselves to non-European literatures, particularly uh, since the 1950s. Enlightenment and Romanticism constituted in this regard a continuum in which the exotic and unfamiliar gradually populated literature and the arts, often confronting the artist with the question of how to (coughs) portray difference so that it becomes comprehensible, while remain, retaining its irreducibility to Western cultural norms. And this widely later than Schlutze. Um, Herder's uh, Volkslieder comprised samples of oral poetry from as far afield as Peru. The second edition, known as Stimmende Völke in Liedern, extended this curiosity to Madagascar. It is important to realize that the prism through which Schluter observed the growth of literature was that of the individual peoples of the world. In Schluter's view, world literature is a cumulative, aggregate and I have to say, widely static entity whose completeness is a matter of expanding the list of nations whose literatures are represented in the catalogue of cultural wealth. An appreciation of cultural difference in the collective agency of the people or the nation was thus on the agenda as an extension of the notion of solidarity with an empirically attestable wider humanity. I refer here to the gradual rise of uh, uh, anthropology and, uh, um, and, and so on. But despite all this, Schlöter was less concerned with promoting a dialogue between these literatures and their dynamic interaction hardly claim his interest. Canetti's auto da fe cannot be grasped outside this framework of a boundless humanity that offers its cultural gifts to the discerning and appreciative European. Not by accident is Peter Keane, the main character in the novel, a sin- sinologist. Chinese literature having been recognized as a constituent part of world literature by both Schloetzer and Goethe, who tells Eckermann of his delight in reading a Chinese novel. And we know from uh, the work of people who have uh, examined Goethe's reading in detail that this Chinese novel was was not actually a very good Chinese novel. It was certainly not part of the Chinese canon which brings um, Uh, which which really poses this entire question of whether uh, the current discourse, Anglo-Saxon discourse on world literature, does not uh, need to suspend value judgment in order to to do its own work. So, Canetti tells us about uh, Petr Keen. Keine menschliche Literatur war ihm fremd. No branch of human literature was unfamiliar or alien to him. This is how Keane is introduced to the reader early on with an added remark on his knowledge also of Sanskrit, no doubt a jibe at the romantic preoccupation with ancient India, Japanese and the Western European languages. Keane, in other words, is a philologist par excellence, a model scholar of world literature in its enticing totality. The fact that he carries another invisible library in his head uh, and, and the novel uh, does an awful lot um, of, of, of this invisible library that he, he carries around is a confirmation of his internalization of couch. He had not succumbed to the recent facts of superficially praising Japanese and Chinese art which had been so much a part of European middle-class demeanor since the late 19th century. Instead, he walks around as a veritable encyclopedia of Chinese and other Eastern cultures to which he relates with genuine understanding and informed restraint. And yet, keen himself gives the light to this humanistic embrace of otherness. Literature, to him, is the sum total of dead manuscripts and old inscriptions, rather than the living word of, say, a novel. For keen, novels furnish pleasure at a prohibitive cost. They crack open the otherwise monolithic personalities of their readers by enticing them into sympathizing with characters who hold dear values that may well differ from their own. This turns the novel into a rather dangerous genre, an instrument of unhinging and dislocating the reader from a space of moral certitude into a zone of unfamiliarity, dizziness, and perilous self reliance. For that reason, just as in Plato's Republic, Keane believes that literature, if exemplified by the novel, as is uh, the case in modernity, should be prohibited by the state. Canetti thus ultimately parodies the humanistic idea of cosmopolitan culture and the Enlightenment notion of world literature as one of its indispensable manifestations. To appreciate the depth and subtlety of Autodafé we must see it in the context of Kennedy's renewal of and challenge to the central European Jewish literary patrimony, especially the work of Kafka. Kennedy has often acknowledged his fascination with Kafka in his essayistic work and also in his little book of 1969, *Der Andere Prozess*, translated into English as Kafka's Other Trial, The Letters to Felice but nowhere so vividly as in his novel. It is with reference to Kafka that I suggest we could attain a more nuanced understanding Mm -hmm. of Kennedy's choice to cast Peter Keane as a sinologist. The mockery of the idea of world literature as an instrument of cosmopolitanism is an important pointer, but there appears to be more behind Kennedy's decision. In Chinese philosophy, a lifelong fascination for Canetti, he discovered an apposite parallel to, Kafka, to Kafka's art of transformation into something small, of disappearance into self-imposed insignificance and humility as resistance to or evasion of power. In this sense, Kafka Canetti asserted unhesitatingly was, I quote, the only writer of the Western world who is essentially Chinese, end of quote. Canetti invoked his conversations in London with Arthur Whaley, the self-taught orientalist and translator of *Monkey* of Chinese poetry and the Confucian classics, as confirmation of his opinion of Kafka. But the killer proof seems to have come from a passage in a postcard Kafka had sent to Felice from Marienbad, in which he avowed, I quote, Indeed, I am a Chinese. End of quote. With all the ramifications of such a statement that Canetti then chose to read into Kafka's brief text. In Canetti's words, Silence and emptiness, receptivity of everything animate and inanimate, all these are reminiscent of Taoism and of a Chinese landscape." End of quote. I'm coming to my uh, conclusion. Chinese philosophy and culture in Canetti's novel should not be taken at face value. Canetti deliberately skewed, misread and manipulated his sources. and and there are good studies of of this. Uh, But the end result was a caricatured emblem of cultural harmony and a deliberately debased ideal of world literature and cosmopolitanism, emptied, as we have seen, of its core notion of diversity and difference. Part and parcel of this paradigm of world literature is the very motive of the Battle of the Books, a topos in European literatures that goes back to Cervantes and Swift. Revealingly, in order to enhance their endurance in the new war regime, and those who have read the novel would know what I'm referring to, King reorders his books in his library with their spines turned to the wall introducing anonymity and obliterating any trace of difference. The novel then is a a celebration not of the uniqueness of singular cultures nor indeed of their supposed interaction. Rather, it is a reconfirmation of skepticism vis-a-vis the very possibility of cultural dialogue. I have briefly dwelt on Canetti's novel not just in order to highlight his scepticism, something I think very healthy to do, but in order to draw attention to this, in my view, extremely important meta-level of reflection on world literature, in which literature itself ponders the idea of world literature, always from a specific and thus limited cultural and ideological perspective.